You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar with Dom Beattie and Harrison Asprey, powered by savings.com.au, your home of consumer finance news, guides and product comparisons. G'day, yes, you are listening to The Savings Tip Jar podcast, a bit of savings chat to help keep your wallet fat. Oh, nice um, Yes, and uh, yeah, my name's Dom Beattie and uh, joined as always by the rambunctious raconteur, Harrison Asprey. G'day, Harrison. Thanks, Dom. Thanks for that lovely description. And I've liked that you've brought back the rhyming intro. It's <laughs> Why not? It's uh, shorter, you know, wet the whistle of many ears out yeah. there. Um, That's it. But yeah, uh, so looking forward to uh, today's pod and we, hi- we have a pretty special guest today um, on. It's uh, the Shadow Housing Minister, Michael Suka. Um, he's here to talk about uh, you know, the government's shared equity scheme, mm-hmm. uh, housing policy, what the opposition's proposing, uh, among other things. So that'll be a good chat. And mm. I should and stress to yeah. yeah, I should I, stress I too, Don, that to we, we did actually try <laughs> reaching out to the um the the, the, the housing minister, uh, not not just the shadow housing minister, uh, but her team never responded. So um but yeah, we'll be sure to to keep it firm with uh, with Michael. Yeah, uh, um, given his his mob had nine years in power, and um, yeah, we'll chat all about that as well. Mm. So um, yeah, th- we like you said, we did reach out to Julie Collins, the the current housing minister within the government. Uh, didn't get a response, unfortunately, but uh, we did get a response from. Um, Michael Sukar, who was the previous housing minister, obviously under the previous government. Yep. So, you know, basically gives him a free kick <laughs> to have a go uh, at the uh, the current government for their current housing policy. Um, but, you know, yeah, like you said, we can we can ask him, okay, well, what about, what did you guys do when, when you were in power? Exactly. Um, what would you be doing if you were in power and, and how would that be better? Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, interesting chat ahead. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but... Obviously, we've got some pretty big news to start off with. RBA's latest decision. Yeah, pretty big latest news, Dom. Uh, hot off the press is um, the RBA has once again left the cash rate on hold at 4.1%. It's the uh, third month in a row mm-hmm. that they've done so. Um, and it's actually the governor, Dr. Phil Lowe's last monetary policy meeting before he jets off into the sunset in uh, mid-September when uh, Michelle Bullock, the current deputy, mm-hmm. takes the reins. Um, so... They obviously saw that uh, some economic indicators were moving in their favour. You know, inflation's coming down slowly. Um, household spending has really taken a hit, especially in in, in discretionary items. Mm-hmm. Uh, retail trades down when you consider um, inflation and um, and population growth as well. Um, but one big sort of item to tick off that hasn't been. Um, released yet is GDP that's going to be released tomorrow so Wednesday um, for the June quarter so it'd be really interesting to see what what the economy is doing with all the population growth Mm -hmm. and um, my bet is we're going to be in a per capita recession because of all the population growth you know people haven't found their feet yet with new jobs Mm. and stuff coming to Australia so that'd be one for the RBA to look out for but yeah um, the RBA decided to leave the cash rate on Mm. hold at 4.1. So does that mean um, the previous GDP results that came out showed that um, GDP per capita fell. Yep. So, oh, so if we have another fall, that's two yeah. consecutive quarters and negative. So last quarter was the March quarter, uh, and that was, it was negative per capita. And right. then I think the quarter before that, which is the December quarter, was flat, so 0.0. Okay. I'll take your word um, for that. Happy to be, uh, eat my words on that one. But um, yeah, it's looking like a per capita recession potentially. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, going to be an, an interesting one to round out the year, I guess. Mm. And um, Michelle Bullock will have her hands full when she becomes the new governor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, the the number that we're most interested in when the GDP results come out is that uh, household savings mm, ratio. I forgot about that. And uh, that's been one that's been um, plummeting. Obviously, it's surged to, uh, I don't know if it was record high levels, but very, very high levels during the, the pandemic because people really didn't have much choice but to stay inside and, mm. um, and not spend their money. Um, so... We saw, I don't know, I think it was like nearly 20% at one point, which is just unheard of. Yeah. Uh, and now it's coming back down to earth. Pre-pandemic um, levels for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, pre-pandemic levels are even lower than it was pre-pandemic. So yeah. And head to savings.com.au to see all the stats that we have and yep. see all the lovely graphs that That's, we've made. That's uh, definitely one that we um, we showcase a lot across our website. Um, just looking at some other news here, uh, we saw this week some new data come out from PropTrack revealing that housing affordability has plunged to a 30-year low. So one of our journalists, Brooke Cooper, covered this one for savings.com.au, uh, revealing households earning the median annual income of around $105,000 could afford just 13% of homes hitting the market over the last 12 months, which is the lowest portion since PropTrack records began in 1995. Um, so basically, if they were to buy a median-priced home, uh, the average income household would need to put a third of their earnings towards mortgage repayments. Um, and first-home buyers, uh, naturally, are the most impacted uh, with the time it takes to save a 20% deposit, stretching to nearly six years, which, um, yeah, can be a pretty, pretty hard slog over those six years, saving up that money for that house. Mm, especially... You know, until recently, interest rates were so low. Um, I kind of wish that I threw caution in the wind and just got in the market. You mm. know, three, four, five years ago oh, with a five percent deposit. Property was cheap as well. I mean, you look yeah. at any suburb. You look basically. at twenty nineteen prices, and you might I know. cry. Um, you just think, oh man. <laughs> uh, especially you know around Brisbane with uh, townhouses mm. and apartments and stuff, mm. just super cheap. Looking back, um, and there'd be a lot of sort of potential homeowners, home buyers like me, um, who are kind of kicking themselves they didn't. But you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and. Uh, look, it's yeah, really no surprise because interest rates have risen so rapidly. But you know, as we've seen as well, like home prices haven't really declined, um, like many economists were forecasting, mm. um, to kind of compensate. So house prices are still very high, and interest rates are high to boot. So if you're not in the market, then you're kind of left outside of of the party while everyone's sipping punch. Really, um, especially if you've been in the market for. A few years, you know, you built up some equity and you've um, you've become accustomed to interest rate rises. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough going for those who are trying to put together a deposit without any help. Um, and yeah, it's uh, and and I think I, um, there was a news story that I saw um, in Melbourne. Um, there's nowhere that's actually considered affordable anymore in in uh, Greater Melbourne. You have to go out to kind of Melton or Ballarat. yeah yeah maybe Ballarat even to be, mm. to be able to afford a home um, mm. on that median income. That's interesting because um, I mean if you actually look at Melbourne property prices uh, in real terms, I guess like you know adjusted for inflation, um, they really haven't really changed much since like 2017. I think I saw. I mean mm. that was that was a big um, property price boom in Melbourne it was around that 2017 2018, and then it kind of dropped off a fair bit came back up a bit during uh, the pandemic, dropped mm. again when interest rate rises started to come back up. I think now property prices in Melbourne are still growing uh, at a very at a pretty slow rate. Uh, mm. I think it's the, the lowest rate of all the capital cities at the moment. It's kind of just over, it's like point something percent a month, uh, maybe like 0.2, 0.3, 0.4. Um, 
but yeah, so it's interesting that uh, you still get that data showing well, it's it's still severely unaffordable for people in yeah. Sydney. Well, that's a whole other. Let's not even talk about Sydney. Story that's uh, pretty mental. There's not much you can really afford in Sydney, um, but Brisbane, I guess, still relatively affordable. It did have that huge boom through mm. 2020, um, through most of the pandemic. I think it was the the big outperformer of all the capital cities. Uh, in Australia, so yeah, that like you, I'm kicking myself that I didn't buy just before then. Yes, yeah. oh, man, <laughs> like just buy anything, really. I, I know, mean, I yeah. know. But, I mean, but you just get so fixated on like saving up that twenty percent deposit, yeah. um, and you just kind of think, well, maybe that cost of lenders mortgage insurance was worth it mm. to to ride that wave upwards. Because you can refinance, and you know, yeah, yeah. and what, what it might be what like five grand or something, and but then you you can immediately generate like five, ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty grand in equity in a year yeah. uh, with that, that price boom. It's but a, it's a pretty, thing, it's a pretty sad case when uh, your property could earn more than you do in a year. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's quite that's quite common in Sydney. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, and particularly in those um, really luxurious suburbs. Um, yeah. So let's. So yeah. Let's uh, get off the property chat for a bit and then um, talk about some customer-owned banking. So to those keen listeners, uh, you might have remembered that we interviewed uh, someone from the Customer-Owned Banking Association of Australia a few months ago, um, Stephanie Elliott, and uh, speaking of the uh, mutual bank sector, um, Beyond Bank, so one of the largest customer-owned banks in Australia, is set to acquire or in uh, inverted commas merge with uh, First Choice Credit Union. So that's a tiny uh, orange New South Wales based credit union um, that serves that sort of district in the central west there um, and this story was by myself yours truly on nice. InfoChoice so just giving myself a plug there too mm-hmm. and giving InfoChoice a plug there as well um, so the Adelaide based Beyond Bank um, has signed a memorandum of understanding with the uh, credit union uh, sig- signalling an intent to merge so um, members of the first choice credit union will have a chance to vote on this uh, merger later this year um, and there's 4,000 members in that credit union um, by comparison you know beyond banks the I think the fifth largest customer owned bank with more than 10 billion in assets and uh, nearly 300,000 customers so uh, it's a pretty big fish uh, in the mutual sector um, but you know still pretty tiny in the grand scheme of things when you consider Combank over one trillion dollars in assets and you know, um, with the big four, there's around three quarters of the home lending market as well. So um, it's been a pretty busy year, Dom, for uh, mm-hmm. customer-owned banks merging. So we saw uh, Heritage and People's Choice merge in March mm-hmm. uh, and then Greater Bank and Newcastle Permanent. So the two ones based in the Hunter Valley merge at around the same time. So, yeah, what do you make of all that, all those M&As? Yeah, a lot of merging activity seems to be happening among these smaller players. Um, you know, I thought with interest rates being a bit higher, that would have probably boost the um, the net interest margin. So basically, the profit margin the for a lot of uh, smallest uh, for, for a lot of smaller banks, the NIM. Uh, and I thought maybe that would have meant that we wouldn't need to see as many of these mergers because really they're merging to survive and get by. But shows that this is still still happening. Um, it's a bit similar to kind of what we see in the superannuation sector. A lot of the smaller players had to merge with each other mm. in order to um, you know, meet the pretty high standards set by, uh, I think it's APRA that regulates uh, the superannuation sector and they have to meet key performance standards. Um, we don't really have those performance standards for banking other than you know making sure they're well capitalized to, and can survive in, in the event of a, a run on the banks and things like that um 
but uh, yes, it shows that obviously they're, they're still still having to having to merge. But I guess uh, sometimes mergers, you know, ACCC looks at them unkindly and thinking um, there's less choice for consumers, less competition mm. in the market. But I think in these instances, you probably see the banks become a bit more competitive. They, they probably realise that they're more competitive if they merge. Mm. Um, they can probably offer better rate products to to the average punter. So I think in this case probably would be um, a good thing you know I wonder what happens to uh, do you know if there's any branch closures that, that comes as a result of this because that would annoy a lot of people it would um, there wasn't really any information on that uh, thus far because it's still early days but mm. um, I think beyond yeah beyond banks trying to maintain that presence in that in that region so um, and there's also a few other credit unions in that region too but as we've um, chatted with with uh, Steph from Coba in the in the past, that um, those customer-owned banks actually have a huge uh, retail presence in those regions. Mm. So um, I think they possess, you know, um, around one in five uh, ATMs um, in and branches in the in in regional areas so outside of capital cities. Um, and that's you know they're punching above their weight when it comes to their actual. Mm-hmm you know, bricks and mortar footprint compared to the um, major banks and other yep. big challenger banks because they're, they're pretty feverishly closing down mm. their branches just to, for cost cutting, but the customer-owned banks, you know, still are staying true to their region and having a pretty strong presence. So um, there will be, you know, quite fairly some outcry if Beyond Bank suddenly comes in and acts as all the staff and whatever. And they have, um, they will offer all first choice um, credit union staff a job at, at the Beyond Bank as oh, well. Yep. So um, that's kind of notable, I guess. Um, but yeah, and then like it's interesting what you say about the ACCC because they recently blocked um, ANZ's uh, attempted takeover of Suncorp that's Bank. Right. So um, And they keep going on about uh, uh, Bendigo Bank potentially coming in in the fray, but I think Suncorp Bank is pretty much the same size as Bendigo. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I understand, Dom, you're looking at a customer-owned bank for your own home loan. Oh, yeah, thinking about it, there's a, I've spotted a pretty good offer um, on the market from GNC Mutual Bank. Yeah. Um, comes with an offset account, which I, you know, I really, really like those. Uh, and a very good rate. Um, it's you know approximately like 45 basis points lower than my current rate, I think. Yeah. Or, or wow. around, yeah, maybe... 30 to 40 to 40 um so yeah it's worth a shot i mean i'm gonna try talking to my lender first yeah um, that's that's the way to go and saying hey look (laughs) i'm looking to switch to these guys but just saying before i do uh if you guys have a better rate for me Mm. as as you should do Um, save stuff and i realized you know it could could save me um quite a few hundred dollars um a month so definitely worth doing i think um now to just a, a last bit of news here. We have seen uh, a story published by yourself, Harrison. Oh, me, really? On uh, infochoice.com.au that ASIC plans to sue Westpac over tardy hardship responses. Uh, so, you know, ASIC and Westpac have a bit of a testy relationship going yeah, back. a bit of a toxic the, relationship. Uh, the famous uh, Wagyu Shiraz case where Westpac won that one. Um, Left ASIC a little red face there, where um, and you know ASIC was trying to sue Westpac basically on on how they assess potential home loan applicants, mm. and uh, basically saying Westpac were, were too soft in in how they analysed people's expenses, um, but uh, the judge ruled in favour of Westpac's with the whole the famous line about uh, Wagyu Shiraz. Mm. 
um, basically saying, you know, the, the average punter, if they're having Wagyu Shiraz, uh, you know, every night for dinner, um, and then they were to take out a home loan, and you know, which is quite expensive to, to keep up with, perhaps they wouldn't still keep having Wagyu Shiraz every night, which is kind of what ASIC seemingly wanted a lot of lenders to do. Mm. Um, so anyway, it seems like ASIC is probably trying to get a win over Westpac, get revenge on them. Um, I mean, it's probably a bit, um, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be putting it this way because the, the prob- the, there are legitimate concerns, um, basically, that, that the bank is allegedly failing to respond to customer hardship notices in the mm. time required by law. Um, so in regards to offences taking place between 2015 and 2022, yep. where uh, 229 Westpac customers were not receiving a response to their hardship notice within the required time frame of 21 days. Now, when you're in hardship, every single one of those days is is pretty punishing, I'd imagine. And you're, you're just on tenterhooks waiting for some help. You're really mm. struggling. You're worried about what's going to happen to um, the house. Um, I mean, you could almost literally be on suicide watch, I guess. Mm. Um, people freak out about this sort of stuff. So it is crucial that banks respond and to then, customers. And then even worse, you know, um, a number of these uh, customers allegedly, um, being the active word there, um, had debt collectors come to their door because they were falling behind on their mortgage, even though they'd reached out to Westpac and said, oh, hey, really? I'm falling behind on the mortgage. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> they just haven't had a response from the major banks. So, mm. um, yeah, it's, it, it's a tough scenario for those uh, home loan customers. But th- this is all, you know, before the courts and... Mm. The ASIC haven't sued yet. Um, well, no. that they're suing now, but they haven't won the haven't yeah, won the case for the cause. Yeah. And in Westpac's case, you know, they're, they're saying that in that period they received six hundred and thirty thousand applications for hardship assistance. Yeah. So a few slipped through the cracks. Yeah, two hundred twenty nine out of six hundred and thirty thousand. Although the two hundred twenty nine is just the ones we've heard about. A lot of people mm. probably haven't complained. Um, yeah, about exactly. it just yet but uh, yeah that'll be an interesting one to, to keep an eye on so yeah stay tuned to that but but really yeah banks should have um, good hardship teams and I think on the whole they, they do quite well it is within a bank or a lender's uh, best interest mm. to uh, make sure that their customers are okay and to give them every chance possible to avoid defaulting on a home loan because yep. lenders don't want their, their customers defaulting on the loan it's, it's a lot of admin for them a lot of work to repossess the house and then have to sell it on the market and hopefully mm. get a good price to enough of a price to pay off the, the loan and if it doesn't get a good enough price to pay off the loan they have to then engage the insurer that they have if if they indeed had lenders mortgage insurance um so it's a whole thing so that's why you often see lenders um you know saying to customers hey look if you're really really struggling we, we could do something you could take a repayment holiday maybe for a few months until you get back on your feet mm. you could go interest only we can extend the loan term out a little bit which will obviously see you charge more interest yeah. like a lot of those options will but anything to really keep customers afloat um, so but yeah I mean if, if they're just not responding to them uh, it's, it's been over so 20 tough. days yeah. uh, that's definitely not great especially with all those interest rate rises too no like, like I bet Westpac didn't struggle to, to send a letter saying interest rates going up. No, yeah, you know, but they if you're reaching out to them, it's oh, you know, you get the silent treatment. But mm-hmm. again, you know, before the courts, who are we to say um, Westpac could win again? You know, they must have mm-hmm. a pretty good legal team. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if uh, 
to sort of transition a bit. Um, if you're getting a dud deal from your bank or lender on your home loan, then um, you could consider refinancing if you have the equity. Um, and you can, where can you head, Dom? I think it's savings.com.au. You can mm -hmm. head there and compare rates, uh, refinance rates. And refinancing really isn't um, as hard as uh, a lot of people make out. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, refinance could in, could even include just asking for a better deal from your lender, or if they don't come to the come to the game, um, you could consider going with another lender. Well, yeah, that's that is how I came across that deal with uh, GNC Mutual Bank. Uh, nice. You know, I was playing around with the the, the home loan tables on savings to come to you. Um, you know, sorting it from from lowest to highest uh, by interest rate, and then uh, yeah, I, I came across this this great deal, and um, obviously I'm going to explore that. Um, used our mortgage repayment calculator to look at what the repayments would be under yep. that deal and uh, was very impressed by um, how much I could save hmm. by switching. So yeah, absolutely. If you are, if you do think you, you're getting a dud deal on your home loan, come to savings.com.au, compare home loans and, and try our home loan repayment calculator or our yep. mortgage switching calculator mm. where you can plug in you know the details of your current home loan rate versus a new one and it'll show how much you could be saving per month. Yeah, great stuff from our development team there. Um, and without further ado, let's get into our uh, chat with the uh, Shadow Housing Minister. All right, now we talk about housing quite a bit on this podcast and for good reason, because it's so integral to saving money. Housing expenses, whether that's rent or repayments, probably drain the most out of our budgets, possibly more so than ever nowadays with housing affordability plunging as we touched on earlier. So is there anything our politicians can do about it? Well, let's discuss with Shadow Housing Minister Michael Sukar. Michael, thanks for joining us on the Savings Tip Jar. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Michael, on a pretty busy day, it looks like. So um, we'll first discuss probably the most important uh, policy announced recently um, by the government um, for our listeners, and that's the uh, government's help to buy shared equity scheme. So um, what are your general thoughts and feelings on that scheme and where does the opposition sit with it? Well, look, it's fair to say we're not particularly excited about the scheme, to be frank. I mean, it's a very small scheme. Um, the government's saying that they're making 10,000 places available per year. It was supposed to start on 1st of January this year, and it's now already nine months late. So we, we don't have much detail or information from them. Um, but the policy, in essence, it's a, a fairly plain and vanilla shared equity scheme where you will own um, a home with the government and the government will own up to 40% of, of that home. So it's the equity component. Um, look, my honest view is there'll be some Australians who find that as a uh, an opportunity to enter the housing market and will be enthusiastic about owning a home with the government. Um, history tells us that most Australians don't view that as something that they aspire to in their lives. There's a lots of questions that are unanswered. You know, who carries the repairs and maintenance? Uh, if you cease to qualify, for example, if you get a pay rise and all of a sudden your income is above the threshold of the scheme, are you then forced to dispose of the home uh, and you might be forced to, by government to sell your share of the home. Uh, a whole lot of questions that aren't answered. So from our perspective, uh, shared equity is very niche. They're very small. Typically, a very small number of Australians uh, want to get involved. Um, and we're waiting to see the detail on this. But as I said, it's nine months late. This government really doesn't talk about first home buyers. 
Um, if I can give a shameless plug, Harrison and Dominic, I'd say <laughs> for the people listening to this podcast, they should uh, check out the Home Guarantee Scheme that I put in place when I was Housing Minister. It helps people buy a home with a deposit of as little as 5%. It's backed by a number of banks. There's a panel of lenders. Uh, that's helped um, more than 100,000 people into their first home. So I personally view that coalition program of the Home Guarantee Scheme much more preferable for most Australians because in the end, uh, they'll own the home themselves 100%. They won't be sharing it with the government. Obviously, that home guarantee scheme is still going. Uh, the the current government has retained that policy, uh, and I guess they've they've expanded it as well. Um, obviously, you've got the uh, the family home guarantee as well as the regional home guarantee as well. Um, but uh, Michael, I just wanted to ask you about the uh, the Housing Australia Future Fund. So, for those that don't know, that's the ten billion dollars that's to be invested. The returns from that ten billion dollars uh, are to be used to build uh, 30,000 new social and affordable housing properties in the first five years of the, the policy. Now, we've got groups such as Master Builders Australia and the Property Council really wanting this to happen. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, at the time when people are crying out for affordable housing supply, why is the coalition blocking this policy? Well, we've not supported it from the start, so um, we're not blocking it. Uh, it's up to the government to get their legislation through, and they've been, been unable to get the support of the Senate to pass this policy. Look, let's be frank. This was a policy that was cooked up so the government could say, we're investing $10 billion into housing, as you quietly, quite rightly prefaced in your remarks, Dominic. It's not $10 billion into housing. It's $10 billion which gets parked with the future fund. Uh, that costs us about $400 million a year, a year in interest on the borrowing of that $10 billion. Then it probably costs another $100 million on the management fee that the Future Fund charged the Commonwealth. So to borrow that $10 billion and give it to the Future Fund, it's costing Australian taxpayers about $500 million per year. And then there's the hope that that will return in that fund an amount above that $500 million that can then potentially be distributed into social and affordable housing. Our point has been that if a government's going to invest in social and affordable housing, it should do so directly. Uh, it should make sure that the return, that the investment is predictable. And that's far from the case here with the Housing Australia Future Fund. The other point I'd make, if everything I say occurs and the fund does exceptionally well and it delivers more than half a billion dollars a year in interest that it's going to cost, and management fees, and there actually is a distribution to build social and affordable housing. They're seeking to build 6,000 homes per year for the next five years. Um, we built more than 6,000 social and affordable homes per year when we were in government, so they're promising to do less. And to be frank, at the same time that they're saying that they are making this bold commitment to build 6,000 homes a year, uh, they're going to be bringing in over that period 1.5 million migrants. Uh, so we think uh, it is utterly ridiculous as a policy. Uh, if the government's going to invest in housing, they should do so directly. It should be predictable. Um, had, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners will be aware, had this fund been set up last year, they would have lost money. Uh, not only would there be no money for social and affordable housing, the $10 billion would have gone backwards because the future fund shrunk in environment uh, in a tough economic environment. So there's no certainty for the industry. 
Uh, I don't blame the Master Builders Association or the Property Council saying that they support it uh, because in the end, they will quite rightly support any potential investment into housing, no matter how small it is. Um, obviously, as an opposition, we've got to look at these things uh, with a, a much broader focus. And um, to be paying $500 million a year in interest and fees on borrowing, our basic point is, why don't you just cut out the middleman being this future fund and just spend $500 million a year directly on, so on social affordable housing? which is essentially what you're doing by borrowing the money anyway. Uh, the Greens in the Senate happen to agree on that point, uh, and that's why it's not got through. So, uh, look, we think it's a, a bit of a Ponzi scheme. Um, it's, to be frank, been engineered to make it sound like they're spending $10 billion on housing. Um, you and your listeners who are financially literate know that's not true, but they're hoping for a lot of people out there that they just hit the $10 billion and people make that assumption that they're doing something huge for housing, which we know they're not. So we're not supportive. We haven't supported it from the start and uh, there will be no circumstances where we, where we support that fund. Mm. Some pretty uh, strong strong terminology there, Michael, with uh, describing it as a as a Ponzi scheme. Um, and I, I never thought I'd see the day uh, where the LNP would agree with the Greens on that one. Um, but here we are. Um, we we came to our position first, so the you know our position <laughs> okay. been very clear. Well, the Greens are coming on. And, uh, and I, support I, I probably I probably didn't think the Greens would agree with us either, but uh, strange things happen sometimes. There we go. Yeah. Um. So my next question is: the LNP had nine years in power, um, and and I think if we look at the sort sort of rate of um, you know, like you mentioned, if if you want to increase supply, you, you got to cut out the middleman and build it yourself. Um. And I think if we look at the rate of uh, public housing um, to the population, it's actually um, fallen over the last sort of 30 years or, or so. Um, so my, my question is why um, why now? Why didn't the why didn't the LNP address that in their nine years in power? Well, look, as you would know, predominantly public and social housing is the responsibility of state governments. They're the one who own the stock. They're the ones who manage department housing. So. It's really only been a recent phenomenon that the Commonwealth has even got involved in, in this case, social and affordable housing. And when I was Assistant Minister to the Treasurer, we, we set up the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation. That's a very proud coalition achievement where we funnel billions of dollars and um, assisted in bringing down the finance costs for uh, community housing providers. So uh, sadly, you're right. Um, under predominantly, but not only, state Labor governments, we've seen um, record low investments into housing. We've seen the wait lists increase across the country. And that was part of the reason why we stepped in for the first time, set up the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation to do what we could do um, as, as a federal government. Um, and, you know, to the government's credit, they've taken on NIFIC, They've taken on our home guarantee scheme. Uh, they've taken on the first-time super saver scheme. In fact, everything that's there to support people into housing is a coalition policy achievement. There's nothing that's been delivered yet by this government. And let's be frank, they're nearly 18 months into their term and we've seen nothing. We've Obviously, the help, very small help to buy program we've seen promised. Um, when I was housing minister, and you know, today is not just about me crowing about our time in government, but when I was housing minister, we had a 
an absolute laser-like focus on first home buyers, whether it was the home guarantee program, which I established and set up in the first six months uh, of um, the Morrison government in 2019, um, to the first home super saver scheme, as I mentioned, we directly, and home builder, we directly assisted more than 300,000 people into a first home. Um, a pretty remarkable achievement in three years. Uh, and now we see, sadly, first home buyers down, new home starts down, dwelling approvals down, rents up. Uh, not all of that is uh, entirely the fault of the government, but we've seen no reaction or response from them to address these problems. And um, uh, potential investments into social and affordable housing, I would say, Harrison, are not the answer to the Australian housing market. Uh, the answer for Australians is that they can build and own their own homes, uh, that they can purchase their own home. I don't think most Australians aspire to live in a, a home owned by the government. We have those things as a social safety net to protect the most vulnerable, but I've never said that the answer is the government owning more homes and providing them to Australians. The answer has to be empowering and enabling uh, Australians to have a realistic prospect of owning their own home. And that's why everything I, Housing Minister, will continue to do as Shadow Housing Minister is focused on helping particularly young Australians realise that dream of home ownership. And I think, sadly, this government seems to have waved the white flag in, I think, a really shocking except that, you know, a lot of young people I speak to don't think they'll ever own a home. And our job, my job, will be to convince them that they actually can and put policies in place to make that more possible. So, Michael, at the last election, um, your mob went forward proposing the super home buyer scheme where, you know, if, if elected, uh, you would offer first home buyers the opportunity to invest up to 40% or $50,000 of their super to buy a home. Do you guys still stand by that policy? Or would you go to the next election still offering that? Yeah, thanks, Dominique. That is a policy that I put forward before the last election. And yes, we've recommitted to that policy. Uh, we've recommitted to it for the next election. Uh, in fact, the opposition leader outlined it in his first budgeting reply speech that we are absolutely committed to people accessing their own super to purchase a home. And then um, the one bit you left out was to then have to put that corresponding amount back into their super fund once they sold their first home. And we know in Australia, on average, Australians hold their first home for a period of seven years. So a period to build up that equity and then to reinvest into their super fund. Our position simply is um, if you are struggling on what is one of the most difficult hurdles to enter the housing market, that's the deposit hurdle. If you're struggling to get that to to deposit together, you should have the right and the choice to use your money to purchase your first home. It's not mandatory. If you don't want to do that, if you want to keep saving for years to try and get that deposit together and not touch your own super, well, that's your choice. But if you want to use your super, which is your money, for a period of time to put towards your deposit, get into that home, and then be required to responsibly reinvest it into your, back into your super at the end, then you're using your money for what we think is the most important asset that most Australians own in their life. And uh, we know the social benefits um, of owning your own home, the financial benefits of owning your own home. Um, and we also know 
from every intergenerational report and every report into our retirement system. If you enter retirement owning your own home, your financial outcomes are infinitely better. So um, it's a policy we're very enthusiastic about. We'll be talking about a lot between now and the next election. We think super is your money. And if you choose, it's not mandatory, but if you choose to use a portion of your super to put towards a deposit for a first home, that there's no better use of your super than that, in our opinion. And we're very proud to keep making that point every day between now and the election. Michael, we'll move slightly now to um, some recent developments. You know, as it's RBA Day, they left the cash rate on hold at 4.1 for the, uh, I think, the third consecutive month. Um, and this comes after a review into the RBA. So uh, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, announced a review last year and um, it's underway now. Um, so have you had a chance to look at the RBA review? Um, and what do you make of some of the new board appointments and, um, and how will that affect your portfolio and housing? Look, I did look at the review and, I mean, there were, I think, a number of very sensible sort of changes and um, most of which I think we have supported. Um, I mean, in the end, uh, the the RBA has been and its independence has been a success for our country. I know it's been of um, frustration from time to time, particularly when, uh, you know, RBA governor's statements have not necessarily panned out. Um, you know, predictive statements have not necessarily panned out. Um, to date, we've been in broad agreement. We Where we've disagreed with some of the, not necessarily the review, but some of the overtures from the government is that, you know, potentially to have union representation um, uh, on the board. We don't agree with that. I mean, I think this government entrenching union power, we've seen just in the last day or so with their industrial relations laws. We don't think that unions who represent less than 10% of Australian private sector workers should be put in the centre of our economy, which is what seemingly this Labor government wants to do. So I don't agree with that. I don't think there should be automatic union representation uh, on the board. I think the broad policy intent of ensuring that target rate inflation and um, and the labour market uh, are treated to some extent evenly in the hierarchy of, of what monetary policy is trying to do is is not a bad thing either. Um, uh, so, you know, broadly speaking, pretty comfortable with where the review landed and um, I would just say probably oppose some of the more extreme things that have, have come out since, particularly that entrenchment of, uh, of union power uh, in the RBA. Michael Sucker, we've covered a lot today. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time, though, but uh, thanks so much for joining us here on The Savings Tip Jar. Thanks, Dominic. Thanks, Harrison. I appreciate it. Yep, so that was Michael Sukar, the Shadow Housing Minister um, in the Federal Parliament. So our first politician on the podcast, well, first uh, sitting current MP, um, politician, obviously we had a former politician, Anna Bly. Uh, big chat, uh, talking about housing at the moment, some interesting insights offered by him, Harrison. Yeah, for sure. And it really would have been interesting to um, potentially get Julie Collins on as well, just mm. for a bit of back and forth. And, you know, there's some uh, strong words from Michael there and um, a couple of figures that we'll have to fact check, I mm. think. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a testament to us, essentially to uh get on a, a sitting mp oh, yeah. and we understand it's a pretty busy day in parliament as well Pat so on the back there. yeah so um 
yeah, a good coup for little old savings. And um, a couple of the things that he said were interesting, you know, like I, um, you know, my, my question about the, the LNP had nine years in power and then that was kind of off the back of his, you know, whole cut out the middleman kind of messaging around uh, housing supply and I, um, I can see merit in that for sure. But, you know, if the LNP didn't do it in the, in the past nine years um, and then he kind of said, well, it's the... It's the it's the realm of the states, which is also true. Um, but I'm kind of kind of struggling to see the the kind of reconciliation there between like what he what he's saying about um, about criticising the current government and then backing away from that argument somewhat uh, yeah. in the next in the next sort of breath. So um, yeah, what did you make of that, Dom? Yeah, well, I found it interesting. I hadn't actually considered you know the interest costs of that uh, ten billion dollars um, for the Housing Australia Future Fund. So I think he said it'd be costing about four hundred million a year in in interest costs, borrowing that ten billion dollars. Um, so I mean, like you said, we might need to run a fact check on that um, mm. to, to check if, whether that is the case. Um, not that a politician would lie. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had a school teacher in high school used to say, "Yeah, how, how can you tell when a politician is is lying?" Uh, that's when his lips are moving. You know, that that old joke. Well, yeah, it's um, it's like any sort of his stat. You know, you can kind of pluck a stat out from anywhere and mm. construe it to your own argument. So it, it might be a bit of that going on. But, but yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I've heard the current government say that you know that we invest this ten billion dollars in the future fund, and uh, they'll generate around you know five hundred million dollars in returns per year, which we then invest in uh, social and affordable housing. Uh, so building 6,000 a year, as, as Michael said, uh, which gives you th- the 30,000 in the first five years, which is what the, the current government is is saying. Um, but yeah, that 500 million, I wonder if that's 500 million is after interest costs. You bloody if he's so. saying 400, 400 million uh, in interest costs, then that only leaves 100 million to mm. invest. So. Yeah, I need to look into that a bit more. Um, and yeah, we we also ran out of out of time because uh, he he spoke at length, which you know we should expect from a from an MP. But um, about you know his his home builder scheme that he introduced uh, in twenty twenty at the onset of the pandemic, and then more of the home guarantee scheme as well, because both didn't really address supply. Although like home builder was kind of intended to, but look, we've we've seen now that. Uh, it sort of brought forward demand, perhaps at the expense of now, uh-huh. um, and then the home guarantee scheme too. It's not actually addressing, um, I guess, affordability. It's addressing accessibility. You know, a, a lot of um, uh-huh. home buyers can access the market now um, with a five percent deposit, which cuts the time out to save. You know, it would be a consideration for me as well that home uh-huh. guarantee scheme, um, if, like if and when it comes time to buy. But um, it doesn't actually address the fact that you know there's a distinct lack of properties available between you know. What's considered affordable, four hundred thousand, mm-hmm. five hundred thousand, or, or whatever, especially in the capital cities. So, but on the demand side, you've got um, high demand due to, well, immigration. Yeah, uh, he did mention that briefly, um, and you know, as low you interest sort of rates said, more broadly. As you said at the um, at earlier on in the, in the, in the podcast, um, the uh, uh, what's it called the, the GDP per capita. Mm. We're expecting a GDP. Uh, per capita recession. Now, obviously, governments tend to raise immigration because it keeps the economy ticking over. 
It um, keeps the books looking good. Keeps it, you know, looks like you know, yep. the, the, the raw, the, the pure number you're looking at, the GDP growth keeps that positive. But then Get tax receipts, said, inflate away the debt. Yeah, but then when it comes to GDP per capita, um, it looks like it, the numbers don't look so good. So it's that whole thing. Do you do you stop uh, immigrating to sort of, um, you know, let supply catch up a bit, uh, mm. the housing supply? Uh, but then the economy doesn't look so good. The, the numbers, the GDP numbers don't look so rosy. We don't fill the jobs uh, that the businesses need filled. You know, it, it's, it has to be a balance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, you've got staff shortages, you know, unemployment rate near record lows, businesses crying out for workers. But then at the same time, you've got housing supply issues. Mm. Yeah, go um, figure. So, yeah, man, it's a tough one. I guess you know we're we're not the ones in power. We don't have all the answers, so mm. that's why we get to enjoy critiquing those that are in power. <laughs> yeah, it's a great position to be in. Yes, yes. All right, so we've definitely covered a lot in this episode. Uh, that sadly brings us to the end of another episode. Uh, but uh, hopefully, you guys can join us again for another riveting chat about money matters next week. Harrison, thanks again for for chewing the fat with me. No worries, Dom. It's always good to chew a piece of fat with you. Uh, Delicious. And, yeah, thanks to Michael for his time. And, um, yeah, another great episode in the books, episode 32, I believe. So they're ticking up there. And and once again, you know, if you're looking for a home loan or a savings account, you know, you can compare your options at savings.com.au. Absolutely. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and shoot us an email at inquiries at savings.com.au. Thank you very much. With an E. Bye.